Well, I hope that's given you enough time to find Luke chapter 11. If it hasn't, you probably never will. So let's go ahead and begin in verse 29, and let's read the text together. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment, and this generation and will condemn it, for they rep- uh, represent the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. At one time or another, you're going to run across someone who's going to say to you that I won't believe in God until God provides a sign to show me and to indicate to me that he is real and he truly exists. And maybe sometime in your life as a Christian, you have also said to yourself, I need God to show me a sign, to give me direction in the course that I should travel, that I should go. I need some kind of physical indication to show me what God would have me to do. The problem with signs is this, that number one, signs can be extremely subjective. You can receive a sign or believe you've seen a sign and interpret it in many different ways. And therefore, two people may look at the exact same thing and come to two different conclusions. But not only are signs subjective, signs can also be extremely misleading. And the reason I say that is because the Bible warns us that in the last days, the Antichrist who will rise to power will deceive the entire world through signs and wonders. Just because a sign is offered doesn't mean that that sign is necessarily a sign from God. But here in our text this morning, we come to a passage of Scripture that is truly predicated on what has happened earlier in our text. Earlier in chapter 11, as Jesus cast out a demon, he was being accused of casting that demon out by the power of Satan himself, by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, the prince of the dung. That's exactly what that phrase means. It was a phrase that was used throughout Judaism to indicate Satan, the fallen angel that has cause the, of course, havoc in the world in which we have seen and discover and still see the repercussions of today. And so Jesus being accused of that, the religious leaders, the scribes specifically, were hoping that this accusation would cause the people to question the true identity of Jesus Christ, to dismiss him, to disregard all that he has said and done, because Jesus did not fit the profile in which the religious leaders had created based on a misunderstanding of the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. Jesus wasn't kowtowing to their particular desires and wills and whims, and therefore they wanted to reject him before he made his way to Jerusalem 
uh, just before that final week. That is where we are at in our text. It is just before entering in Jerusalem, just before that final week before the cross. This was one of their last opportunities to discredit him amongst the masses. And they appear to have had a certain degree of success. For as the crowds increased, our text begins, they began to cry out to Jesus, saying to them, show us a sign. It was common in Judaism for prophets to validate their ministry or their their authority from God through some type of sign that would indicate that they are exactly who they say they are. A sign is much different than a miracle in the Bible. A miracle can be a supernatural work of God in some capacity, whatever capacity that might be. A miracle can be rendered in a supernatural means. A sign, however, though, the Greek word that is used here, is meant to be just that, a sign saying something. A sign saying something. And in this particular case, it is a sign that would affirm who Jesus Christ really is. Something that would point to his true identity. Now again, you have to ask the question, we've only read now through 11 chapters of Luke, we have seen Jesus do all kinds of extraordinary things, we have seen him born under the most miraculous circumstances, And yet, they're still looking for a sign. You know, it's kind of like the little kid on Christmas who's gone through 45 different presents that they've opened and still saying, oh, is that it? But I just want one more, you know. And they have this meltdown as they're surrounded by half of Toys R Us in their living room. And yet, they still want one more. I don't know what sign Jesus would have given that would have satisfied their request. Do you? Let's see. He fed the hungry, miraculously, the 5,000. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He uh, caused the lame to walk. Um, He's done all these things up until this time, and he was born in a manger with a star that heralded his entrance into this world, and yet they still want more? What more could he possibly give? And due to this request, he identifies the true trouble within the hearts of these people. The wickedness that has crept in. In Matthew's Gospel, where this is also recorded, he adds adds the word adulterers. For their adultery. Seeing that God's word isn't sufficient for them, they believe that they need more to truly understand and to indicate who Jesus Christ is. If they would have searched the scriptures properly, they would have come, of course, to Isaiah and discover that all that Jesus did in his life here on this earth in his first coming has all been recorded for us in the book of Isaiah. The miracles, the message, the man himself, all described in the book of Isaiah. And if they would have properly applied it, they would have seen for themselves that Isaiah testifies clearly that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. That there wasn't any ambiguity to that in which he has done. 
And so since they didn't trust God at his word, and they needed something more, something uh, more uh, visual, physical, etc., he calls them a a wicked and adulterous or an evil generation. And due to this, because of all the information that they have already been given, all the miracles and signs that have already been wrought, He says, no other sign shall be given except one. Save one, he says. And that is the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man be three days in the belly of the earth. Now, Luke doesn't record that uh, portion for us. Matthew does. And he's saying to them that the resurrection, his death and his resurrection will be the final sign. In fact, encased in that final sign, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that that's the gospel itself. That he died, as the scriptures had stated. That he was buried. And that he rose again, as the scriptures have stated. He says, this is the content of the gospel itself. The ultimate sign. So today, if we consider this to be the ultimate sign, then we must say, to disprove the legitimacy and the reality that Jesus Christ is God himself, we have to prove that he is still in the grave. And 2,000 some years later, we cannot find that grave. The grave is still open. The tomb is still empty. And Jesus Christ, of course, is no longer lying there, but is alive and active in his work today in and through the church, through the power of God. So he says, no sign will be given. And then he lists for them two groups of people. I should say one individual and one group of people. The first individual that he lists for us is the queen herself, Queen Sheba, who in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, you might like to read it on your own. She heard through the grapevine, possibly on Facebook or Instagram, that Solomon was the wisest man that was currently living on this earth. And that God had given him this incredible vast knowledge and wisdom that surpassed everything else that was uh, to be found on the earth at that time. And then God also accompanied it with riches and, and vast wealth and materialism and everything else. So she herself had to come and travel this incredibly long distance to find out if it was all true. And there in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, you see the interaction between her and Solomon. And she comes to the conclusion. After interacting with Solomon and seeing what God has done, she can't but help believe that the God in whom he serves is real. And the God in whom he serves is exactly who Solomon says that he is. And so she was convinced. She was convinced by the witness of Solomon. And Jesus said that even Queen Sheba was willing to allow the evidence presented to her through Solomon to convince her of the truth. And yet now one stands before you that is greater than Solomon. And me, you reject. Now, 
the Jewish men, undoubtedly, who were listening, were maybe getting a little hot under the collar at this time. How is it possible that a Gentile woman could discover something that we have not? And Jesus said, yep, she sure did. And during that time of judgment, she will rise up against you and condemn you. For she obeyed the witness and the evidence in which she was given, and she made that confession. This woman, Gentile woman, came to this conclusion, and yet you reject one who is greater than Solomon. And then he goes on to talk about the people of Nineveh. Again, the, the Ninevites were the great enemy of the Jewish people back in the Old Testament. And we've gone through Jonah together as a church. And undoubtedly, you remember the story of Jonah going to the people of Nineveh. And, oh, he was just so willing to go, wasn't he? Oh, he was just, okay, Lord, you want me to go to Nineveh? No problem. Is that what he did? Nope. He hopped on another boat going absolutely in the opposite direction. He says, I want nothing to do with this. I don't care what happens to the Ninevite. I don't care what God wants me to do. I'm just going to get into this boat. I'm going to go over to Tarshish. I'm just going to hang out on the beach. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. Game over. And what did God do? Brought a storm. The ship was about to go under. And the only one that had any peace was Jonah. He didn't care. He's like, if I go under, I still don't have to do what God has asked me to do. But the people on the ship found that he was the source of the problem, threw him over. And what did God do? He was picked up on an American submarine and taken to Nineveh. Is that what happened? No, it was a great big fish. Okay? I'm convinced that I am going to write... My, the, my doctorate on the great big fish, puking Jonah up on the beach. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? I could just see some guy fishing, and here comes this great big fish. He's like, oh, fantastic, it's my day. And then all of a sudden he horks up Jonah, laying on the beach. And he's like, okay, now this isn't my day, you know. And as a result, Jonah found that God's will was not going to be thwarted by his personal desire, but he was going to do what God has called him to do. And he came there and began to preach to the Ninevites, and his preaching was simply this. It didn't, it didn't entail any type of invitation or plea of compassion. It just says, please know that in a few days you guys are going to all be judged. There, God, I've done my, I've done my bid for God and country. And then he went up, and of course, he sat on a ridge, and he uh, allowed the uh, sun the, to start baking him, so God gave him a plant to cover him, and etc. And you know the story. But, uh, but unbeknownst to Jonah, the Ninevites repented, didn't they? And at least at that time, they were spared the judgment of God. And God said that the witness of Jonah in that small token of a message in which he had delivered was enough to convince the people that God was about to judge them and that they needed to get right with God. And they did so, and God's judgment was spared upon them, at least for that point in time. They went back, sinned again, and God did end up judging the Ninevites for what they had done. 
But Jesus is looking at the people as he is saying these words, and he says, if the Ninevites, these Gentiles who were so cruel and so wicked and so evil, if they responded to that simple message in which Jonah proclaimed to them, and yet one who is standing before you is so much greater than he. And to me you will not listen and you request another sign? You request something more? Signs aren't necessarily the catalyst to one coming to believe in God. In fact, we find just the opposite in the Bible, don't we? How many times had God offered signs and still yet the people in which those signs were directed towards rejected Him? And there's no greater example of this than of the ten plagues that Moses uh, called down upon the city of Egypt. I'm sorry, the city of Cairo there in Egypt. Now, do you understand that each one of the plagues that came down, um, that Moses called down from God, was a direct rebuke to one of the pagan gods that they worshipped so diligently there in Egypt. And the plague itself was to show that God, Jehovah, Yahweh, was superior to any of the so-called gods of Egypt. And in each and every case, the plague itself was a sign that God was superior to the pagan god in whom it was confronting. For example, let me give you just a few examples for your consideration. When Moses turned the Nile into blood. The Egyptian god, Horus, was challenged, who was the god of the Nile. When the frogs covered the land, the Egyptian god, Hekek, was challenged. For the Egyptian god always depicted with a head and the body of a frog. When the lice came, we know that the Egyptian god of the priests, who we currently do not know the name of, but we have the hieroglyphics of, was challenged, who is always depicted in the form of an insect. The flies came, and it was a judgment on Hatak, showing that God was superior to the god who was depicted as a fly. And when it came to the death of the cattle, The Egyptian god Hethor, the cow-headed goddess of the desert, was challenged. And so on, and so on, and so on. When it came to the ninth plague, the prime god Ra was challenged and uh, subserted by God himself. And in each and every case, this was a sign to the Egyptian people that God was superior to any of their so-called gods in whom they worshipped, including Pharaoh himself, because Pharaoh believed that he was a god. And yet, what happened? The Egyptians certainly did not believe, but even the Jewish people, after they had gotten into the wilderness, began to long again for Egypt, didn't they? 
And because things became a little difficult and they became a little rough, we have passages that tell us, oh, do you remember the leeks and the onions of Egypt? The leeks and the onions. Things have really, I mean, when you, when you get down that low, it's just, you know, it's just like someone would say, oh, do you remember the salad bars of, uh, of uh, you know, old country buffet, you know? It's just like, really? You know? I'm sorry, but I, I can never go back to an old country buffet because I saw at the one near our house in the salad bar, there was these kids, and they thought that the salad greens were something you could wash your hands in. And I was just like, honey, let's order a pizza. You know, let's get out of here. So think about that next time you go to Old Country Buffet or Golden Corral or one of those, you know. There's always somebody who has gone before you. When it came to Elijah, how many signs did he demonstrate? The shutting of heaven, 1 Kings 17. The fire from heaven, 1 Kings 18. The rain returning, 1 Kings 18. The parting of the Jordan, 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. And yet, many rejected who he was. Of course, the birth of Jesus Christ was rejected. And we know that the Bible tells us that looking forward in Matthew chapter 24, the signs of his return will also be rejected by those who are on the earth. After the signs are clearly articulated for us in God's word and what those signs will be, they will be rejected. And when God begins to pour out his judgment upon this earth, it will not soften the hearts of the people, but harden them. Signs are not the catalyst in which God has chosen to necessarily draw one into believing in him, in his existence, and in whom he claims to be. Let us understand that. And then, of course, we know that the Antichrist will use signs and wonders to deceive individuals, even the elect, the Bible tells us. But if you turn with me to Matthew 24, let me give you some of what Jesus says we can anticipate. And of course, I know that most of you are familiar with this chapter, and I don't want to belabor these points. But let us pick it up in chapter 24, verse 24. Chapter 24, verse 24. Just to give us a little synopsis of what we are referring to. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. Oh, that's interesting. So as to lead astray if possible even the elect this is jesus himself saying this see i have told you beforehand so if they say to you look he is in the wilderness do not go out if they say look he is in the inner rooms do not believe it for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the son of man you don't have to go searching for it, folks. We're going to know when that occurs, don't we? So it's amazing to me that they would look to Jesus, one greater than Jonah, of certainly one greater than Solomon, and ask for a further sign to be given to them. And Jesus tells them very clearly, no further sign will be given except that of Jonah in the belly of the whale, for three days and three nights. 
And we know that after Jesus Christ died on the cross that day, He was taken to the tomb and He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. That's the sign that God wants you and I to look at today. Because other signs, let us be honest, they can be fabricated. I'm sure that all of you at one time or another have taken a road trip and played that game, what can we see in the clouds, right? And I got to be honest, I got a little concerned about my daughter early on in life because she saw things that, well, nobody else did. Do you see that hippopotamus? And there's like no clouds out there whatsoever. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, no, no, don't see. Uh, yeah, yeah. Honey. Did you have that appointment to the doctor? You know. And they're so subjective, aren't they? You know, people say, well, if I go to bed tonight and tomorrow it's Monday, it must be a sign that God wants me to do this. Or if the sun goes down exactly at the time that the weatherman said it will, then I'll know that God wants me to do this. They're very subjective, aren't they? And of course, we've seen the number of people who run to a water spot spot that looks like the Virgin Mary. Or finding her then in a tortilla shell. You know, and we've seen all of this, haven't we? Or a cloud formation that happens to come at that certain time where nothing else could possibly be the explanation for it, but then just a sign from God. Does God use signs? Sure he does. It's not that Jesus couldn't have done another sign there. He's not negating the fact that signs are used. But what God does for us is he does something better for us. He has given us something better than signs and wonders to place our uh, belief upon. He has given us something better to place our faith upon, and that's His Word. He says, I've given you my Word, and my Word is sufficient for you. And the Word of God tells us, yes, that certain events in history will be preceded by signs. God is, you know, forecasting them. He's telling us about them, isn't He? Does God want us to look for signs concerning His second coming? Absolutely He does. He says, how is it that you can uh, read the signs of the weathers, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? Of course He wants us to be able to see that, yes, these events that the Bible has clearly spoken on are events that are showing us that we're getting even closer to the return of Jesus Christ from the regathering of the people of Israel into their land to the events taking place today throughout our world. We are getting one step closer. We are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. But see, God gives us His Word. And this Word is what we can rely upon. So may I suggest to you If that you want to see God actively intervene within your personal life, don't ask and uh, request further signs. Here's what I'd like to encourage you to do, if I may. Read His Word. Find the promises that He has made to you in His Word. And by faith, rely on those promises and watch the faithfulness of God uh, fulfill those promises each and every time within your life the way He has Uh, so prescribed that he would do and then after a while you can look back and say oh god was so faithful to maintaining the promises in which he has made to me to me that gives me a much greater assurance 
than any cloud formation. Seeing an, you know, an apparition in some form in a water spot or in a tortilla shell, of course. No, I have the written word of God. And you know what? After 33 years of studying the Bible and being blessed to sit under some of the greatest teachers of our time, I am convinced of this. If God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Let me also encourage each and every one of you to understand that God has given you His Word so it may not be tampered with. That you can be assured of it. And though your circumstances may change and you may find yourselves in time and He who has promised whatever He has promised to us is perfectly and utterly capable of fulfilling that which He has promised to you and I. But let us know and comfort our hearts by the promises of God that we may understand and see God's active work in our lives. I believe then we won't be in need of a sign, will we? Because we will be fully convinced, seeing God fulfill His word, that He is the God in whom He says He is.